This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, I give a touching and heartfelt tribute to my friend Todd as part of Good News Tuesday. I've asked you many times to share your stories, no matter how difficult, and uh, I am trying to lead by example and share that story, even though it's difficult, because out of the sadness of losing a friend, there's a lot of good news and gratitude that comes from it, and we need to find that frame. We always need to find that lens so we can lean into that part of it. Are we better at detecting tornadoes than we were in the 90s? Cotto Miller, wind impacts researcher in the Northern Tornadoes Project, helps us understand tornadoes and how to research them. And thousands of seniors have had their banking info leaked in another healthcare hack. The summer of cyber safety continues with Hank the Hacker, helping us understand what happened and how we can avoid having our information be online. It's all in the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Last night, I took the night off, and I want to explain to you why I did. I was here on Sunday, and if you are just joining us or you weren't around, I did take Monday off. And I'm going to tell this story as to why as part of Good News Tuesday. Good news, everyone. It's about time for some good news. Tell me something good, friends, 877-399-9898. And I asked, have asked you many, many times to share your stories with us, and, and you have, and some of them are very simple stories, and they're uh, that you've got your favorite lunch because your partner spoiled you, or sometimes they're incredibly heartfelt, deep stories about uh, tragedy and overcoming tragedy in our lives. And that's what I'm going to share with you here. I'm going to call myself out. And share a story that uh, is good news in the way that don't be sad that it's over, be happy that it happened. Kind of good news way. A random, very random um, crossing of paths in 2016 introduced me to a man by the name of Todd Inafuku. And Todd was golfing. I met Todd golfing. We became friends. He was from Hawaii. He was in Calgary. I didn't know why he was around. I just knew he was around. And over the years to follow, I realized, as he told me more and more stories, what he was doing. Todd was touring the world and going to all the places that him and his wife wanted to go to and the places that they loved. And the reason why they were doing that is because she had passed away from cancer in 2015. And that's when I met Todd. Todd was a pharmacist. Back then, he was about 65, roughly, 64. And he was learning how to live out these dreams of him and his wife her name was Nora, and how to mourn and stay in love with her. If you saw my post that I posted on my page uh, that's uh, connected to shiftheads.ca, there was a post there where I said, um, I said that uh, rest in love, not rest in peace, rest in love, because that's what he did. Now, the reason why I'm going to tell you this is that on Sunday, um, Ryan and I were talking about the fires in Maui, and I said, well, I should reach out to Todd and find out if he has any connections to uh, Maui people so we can do what we do with Ukraine, and we can talk to locals specifically right in the heart of what's going on. This is all behind-the-scenes stuff, but I, I ask you to share your stories, and so I'm going to share this one um, because you've done it many times. And so when I sent the message to Todd, who uh, always has had an iPhone as long as I knew him, uh, it would be blue. 
And I sent the message and it turned green. And I said to Ryan, I was like, oh, Todd's message turned green. That's weird. And Ryan, in Ryan's always eternally happy way, said, maybe you got an Android, which is a very Ryan thing to say. And I think Ryan saw quickly the look on my face as I said, maybe, or he's dead. And I don't know why I said that. And I don't know why it, it occurred to me in that moment. But I, uh, I just, I just knew. You see, I didn't know. I, I met Todd's sister. I met Todd's brother-in-law. I didn't meet his daughter Ray. I, 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 but I didn't know anybody from his family. And I always knew if something went wrong with Todd that I was going to be in trouble. I would never find out. So we finished the show on Sunday. I woke up on Monday morning, and it was nagging me, just nagging me, what it had, like what was on my mind with this, that green text message. So I Googled Todd Inafuku. And the very first post was his obituary. Todd and I hadn't spoken in a few months. Apparently he died in April. Todd was not sick. Something must have changed. Um, and uh, they had a memorial for him in June. So that floored me. The reason why it's good news for Good News Tuesday is because Todd has taught me everything that I live into every day about love. Like, you have to understand. I realize, you know, this is one of those things. There's some dudes rolling their eyes right now. Oh, he's talking about love. It's everything to me. And I think we can be better at it. And Todd was a master. Nora died in 2015, and I quickly learned through all of my time with Todd, whether it was in Hawaii or in Canada, because we shared time all over the place, that... That's what it was, is he was living into his life with Nora. I learned very quickly that he was taking me to places that he loved to go with Nora. There was a time we went to this Japanese restaurant in Honolulu, and he said, what are you going to get? And I'm not big on fishy foods, but I do like Asian foods, just as long as they're not the fishy foods. And so I ordered the meal, and he smiled. You have to see Todd's face to know a smile, but it was just it just beamed. And um, he said that was Nora's favorite. And that's how I found out that it was his and Nora's, one of their favorite restaurants to go to. So in or in traveling around, and I mean like going, we went to bowling alleys for soup. We went for shave ice. We went, we came in through the back door of sketchy places that I would never go to unless I was with a local, just so we could go in and have French press coffee. And all of these things I learned, including when he came here to Calgary and we drove from Calgary to Cochrane to go for ice cream because he went for ice cream with his wife there once. And he leaned forward in the seat in the car. He was anxious. He was always leaning forward. He was always walking. And I learned that day that I was sort of just along for the ride. I was witnessing all of this time that this man was just creating, recreating all of the love he had for Nora. That's what he did. That's why he went places. He went places and brought people he cared about to those places so he could go there and he could tell the stories. If you've ever heard me talk about love on the show, if you've ever heard any of my work where I try to be patient and I try to listen and be a better listener every day, 
The best part, the most important part of being a speaker on the radio, by the way, is the listening. It's 100% because Todd's fingerprint is on it. Everything. So everything you've ever heard me say in the last three plus years that I've done this show about the experience of love and leaning forward into it and walking into it and letting other people join you because you invite them, but being so determined that you literally walk straight towards the love you're creating for whatever reason you're creating it. That's because of Todd. So I am grateful. I was crushed yesterday. One of those moments where I have never cried. I've never cried like that. And so I took the night off. And today, peacefully, I had to run to Edmonton. So I went to Edmonton and back. And I think I'm clear. A lot more emotions to come up. But I can tell you this. If there's someone in your life that's like Todd, just follow them and watch. Their invitation is there. They're taking you places. They're showing you things. I got to see the love he had for Nora. Devastating news for so many people, but I'm sure... I have to be sure that there's a couple of angels that are dancing. And they've probably gone to Japan to the smell of lavender and cherry blossoms. And so if you see that picture, and if you haven't seen it, I'll share it so you can see it. That's why I learned from Todd that peace and love, they dance together. And once we have peace, that blank nothingness of peace, that's where we find love and it grows and it blossoms. It's just amazing. And it's somewhere between the leaning forward into it and doing it and believing in it that it's found. And here's my gift to you that I learned from Todd. If you want peace in your life, it lives somewhere between intention and integrity, somewhere in the middle. And if you feel like you have love or you're lacking love in your life and you want it, go there, go somewhere in between intention and integrity. Do the work, find the peace, and partway along that, you just might trip over love. That's good news, especially with all the things we talk about, gripe about, complain about in the world today. This is The Shift Podcast. I wanted to take you back in time, oh, a bunch of weeks when we, as our Shift AV Club, did the movie Twister. Now, that was just before Canada Day, and that was just before the uh, the tornado hit just south of Didsbury, north of Carstairs, close to where I broadcast from. It was total coincidence, I promise you that. 
But we did have questions after all of these things have sort of happened. We had that tornado in Ottawa. We had the one that was close to us here. And from that um, twister um, thing, I had a question that came out of it. And this is why we've brought in Connell Miller to join us and hopefully answer some of these questions. Uh, Connell is a PhD, Wind Impacts Researcher, Northern Tornadoes Project, Western University in London, Ontario. Our very favorite CFPL is in London. Uh, hey, Connell, thanks for sparing some time. Yeah, thanks for having me. So here's where we wanted to start. In the movie Twister, the premise was they needed to get Dot and all those little sensors deep inside the funnel so they could see inside a tornado. They wanted to create um, a better alert system so people could get a heads up on a tornado. It was really nice. It was a great little movie. Now, one of the things that I had heard, especially about the Ottawa tornado, and I did hear it about the, uh, the Carstairs one as well, was we got the alert and we only had about 20 or 30 seconds to get out before it hit us. Now, I realize one of these topics is Hollywood and one is real life, but that's what they said in the Hollywood show from the 90s. They were like, we only had 30 seconds to get out. So I wanted to start, Connell, by asking, are we any further ahead at predicting these things or is it really that last minute still? Sure. So that... Um dot project in the movie twister was actually inspired by a real life project uh down in the states um where they they did a similar thing they tried to throw instrumentation into tornadoes to try to better improve our alert system um what we do here at the northern tornadoes project is a bit of a different approach so instead of being storm chasers think of us more as tornado detectives right so we go out and we assess the damage after the fact um, mm. and try to make sure that we know every tornado that's ever happened in Canada this year. Once we know that, we can use that information to try to improve our models in a different sense. So we can say, well, if we know for sure these thunderstorms produced these tornadoes, then we can provide that information to the models that are used to help warn people um, and hopefully improve them in the future. Now. Northern Tornadoes Project is independent of Environment Canada, who is responsible for these warnings, but we do provide assessments for them each year. Um, and it's 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 not great. Um, it's it's almost a, a failing grade, per se, in, in terms of how often they're able to provide warning for storms ahead of time. So mm -hmm. we'd like to see that improve, obviously, and hopefully with these independent assessments, as well as providing this data, we can see that improve in the future. Yeah, it seems to be last minute. I mean, the 30 seconds part seems to be and for the most, you know, enough for people to get downstairs and, and does have an impact. Let's not diminish the fact that those alerts are working. They are saving lives, even though it seems to be pretty last minute still. But it does have an impact. So that's that's good news. There was one story from the Carstairs one where the lady went to the basement and, and the house was basically torn off. And if she hadn't been downstairs, I mean, who knows what would have happened, right? So there's there is some real value to to what's going on there. Um, it looked like a bulldozer. So that's really what it was. And a house across the street was perfectly fine. So how do you go and forensically look at these things then and go digging through what literally looks like the path of a very large bulldozer and figure out what happened? Sure. So I was actually um, there doing the assessment for the Didsbury um, event. Um, and I, again, as you said, um, the warnings were valuable in that case. Uh, I credit them for saving at least 
two separate lives in 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 that event um, from what i heard from homeowners there um but so my background is in structural engineering so i go to site and i take a look at things like construction quality um the age of the building uh how well the roof to wall connections were followed how well the alberta building code in that case was followed uh, and take all of that information uh, and try to use that to assess the intensity of the tornado because again we don't have those twister-like instrumentation that we're able to throw into the tornado every time to get an exact measurement. So any measurement that you get of wind speed from a tornado is actually based off forensic analysis of the buildings and trees and other really? things that were damaged. So anytime you see in the news, this tornado was rated so-and-so at so-and-so kilometers per hour, that's because someone went out there to take a look at the structures and to take a look at the trees and to try to assess what wind speeds could have caused um, that sort of thing to happen. Tornadoes have extreme variability. So as you said, uh, in the Disbury tornado, one side of the road, house completely flattened, other side of the road, uh, the house was missing a wall, but besides that, um, mostly fine. And there, there's things that you look at. There's things like, well, in this case, the one house got impacted at the center of the tornado. And in the other case, it sort of glanced off the weaker side of the tornado. Uh, you look at things like, well, in this house, it had a lot of trees sheltering it, whereas the other house was mostly exposed uh, to the elements. And the trees, in the other case, took the brunt of that damage. So mm -hmm. taking a look at these things as a whole is sort of what my job is and to try to put the pieces together to say the tornado was so-and-so strong at so-and-so point. Yeah, that when there was that house on the hill that was maybe 700 yards away, mm -hmm. um, that was seemed to be perfect, right? Like, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, so would you even get into that? I mean, there was tractors, combines tossed about trucks. Do you get into the weight of the trucks and the weight of the tractors and be able to say, well, this thing weighs 6,000 pounds. In order to move it, it would have taken this? Or is that too simplistic? No, actually, we, we do look at those things. So there is on that property that how the house flattened, we took down the model names and numbers of all of the tractors that were thrown and flipped and the combines and things like that. And we took a look at the weight. And uh, part of what we do here at the Northern Tornadoes Project is we have tools to say, well, if I know this object was this heavy and it moved this far, what wind speeds would have caused that to move? Um, mm. Through the enhanced Vegeta scale that we um, use, we can't use that to officially rate it, which is why it was officially rated based off the house that was damaged and not any of like the tractors or combines that were nearby. But we can use it to at least support the assessment. Um, so, for example, at that property, there was a 10,000 kilogram combine that was picked up, thrown, and then rolled for a good amount of ways. If you think about yeah. the wind speeds that you would need to lift something that's 10,000 kilograms just off the force of the wind alone, it, it, you start to suspect uh, a very severe event. Wow. I imagine your job is um, you, just when you think you've seen it all, you, you haven't seen it all, right? Like you go into one situation and, and you're sort of expecting things and every now and then you walk into one where you're like, I had no idea this was possible. Uh, is it, does it still continue to impress you through all these years? Yeah, for sure. Um, you s I, I try not to get jaded about it because you see ab about 50 to 100 tornadoes uh, per year. There, Canada gets about 120, but I end up usually at about 50 to 100 of them myself. Um, and some of the weaker ones, you're like, okay, I've seen this. I've seen enough trees in a random Ontario forest to, to last me a lifetime, right? But then you mm -hmm. see things that happen in the Didsbury event or even the 
Barhaven event um, back in Ottawa there. Not a severe tornado, but it's not often that because Canada has such a low population density, it's not often it goes through a, a brand, brand new subdivision. And you sort of say, OK, what happens when new construction meets a tornado like this? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, or things like Didsbury combines thrown, houses flattened. Uh, you, it's it's mind boggling even still. Yeah, that neighborhood in Barhaven, that's close to uh, Mel's place. And, and it like, I mean, there's lots of stacked homes there, too. So the, the build is different in that neighborhood. Lots of townhouses, apartments, um, big houses, too. Those houses are very close together yeah. that are detached. So there's, you know, there really is a lot going on there. The, the ones, there was one that I remember that had happened. It was by Bergen by Olds. And it was the tornado had sort of missed it barely, but it literally looked like a clear cut had happened down through the forest. It was just like this path that someone had cut through like a power line, like clear cut, right? Where something like that. So, I mean, it's not to be forgotten. I think I I look at it from the perspective, you know, the never turn your back on the ocean when you're on the beach kind of thing. Yeah. Is it kind of like that, that we should just always be I mean, we hear the alerts, we see the warnings. So many people don't really take it seriously. They're like, oh, thunderstorm, I should watch the lightning, get my phone, stuff like that. Do we, are we getting a little complacent, do you think, as Canadians when we look at these things? I, I think so. I think especially with like weather alerts and things like that, um, I think people can rely on those a, a little too much, especially now that they come to your cell phone. Don't get me wrong. I think it's fantastic that they come yeah. to your cell phone but i think I, agree. People, I think people should also be not weather anxious but weather aware at the very least um for example in the barhaven tornado there was a tornado watch going on all day before that event happened there was no surprise should have been no surprise to anybody that a tornado hit somewhere in the ottawa gatineau montreal area um and if you had a weather app on your phone and was sort of looking you would have known exactly what time that storm was expected to hit, right? Um, whether it was warned in time, I, I'm, I'm not, my memory is not super great for, for that specific event, um, but uh, the signs were there, the, the watches were there. So I think, uh, again, people should be uh, as weather aware as possible. And especially if a warning comes, uh, a warning only comes from Environment Canada if someone has spotted a tornado on the ground or the radar is so obviously showing a tornado that they will warn it. Um, so yeah. if you see a tornado warning, there is a tornado somewhere at the very least in your county, and you should run for the basement as quickly as possible. Yeah, the uh, a watch is possible, and a warning is somebody has eyes on something. Uh, yeah. Right? yeah, I like to say, like, uh, if you think about it in terms of, like, poutine, um, a weather, uh, a tornado watch or a poutine watch is when you have, like, fries and gravy and cheese curds but they're all sort of like separated and no one's <laughs> put them together yet and I a tornado that. warning is or a poutine warning is the poutine is together it's piping hot either eat the poutine somewhere now or go to the basement right oh man now you're making me hungry this is so good uh connell miller is our guest here he's phd he's kind of a he's a tornado guy he's a wind researcher at university uh western university okay like, can i ask you a question about hail in all this i know that you're a wind guy but I, we had a, a situation here just recently where uh, this, the storm warning was baseball-sized hail. That's what the warning was. And I do know just anecdotally from other people say that there was definitely golf ball-sized hail that came down in that storm. Cloud seeding happens to make hail smaller um, so it's not as big and, and, and impactful, right? 
pea size hail versus baseballs. Sure. Yep. So it seems seems to be working. But does that kind of change if it has that much impact on hail? Does that affect storms and tornadoes in any other way if they were to say seed clouds and then it helps with hail? Maybe it helps with the storm too, or does it make the storm worse? Or how does that all work in that big picture? Uh, that's a, a really great question. So um, I'm part of the Northern Tornadoes Project, but we do have a sister project that I spend some time with uh, known as the Northern Hail Project, which is actually based out of Olds, Alberta. Oh, um, well, there's lots of hail in Olds. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a reason we put them there. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And, and part of their job is to actually determine the efficacy of cloud seeding. Um, so the the research honestly isn't there right now to support whether cloud seeding actually helps or not. Theoretically, yes, it helps. Um, but in practice, there hasn't been any measurement or any study done to fully prove that it helps or what other effects that it might have on the storm. So we have a uh, we installed uh, this summer a series of hail instrumentation all across Calgary. Um, and what we're doing is we're tracking which storms are seeded, where are they seeded, and which storms aren't, um, because uh, cloud seeding is a huge part of sort of the Alberta hailstorm infrastructure uh, out there. Uh, and it's our hope in the next few years to be able to say, well, here's what cloud seeding actually does in practice rather than just in theory. Is that just a lack of the instrumentation in the past? I mean, we talk, we, you know, jokingly talk about the dot project from the movie, mm -hmm. um, Twister movie. Is that kind of the same thing as just that there hasn't been a, a, a true scientific study been able to be done and, and do a proper structured controlled environment to see what's happening or is it yeah, just, for, we're that, not there that's yet. essentially it is, is that no one's gone out and, and sort of tried to do a, a study like this before cloud seeding is relatively new technology. And again, it works in theory and that's good enough to at least put it into practice in, in real life. But we want to see what it's actually doing in practice there because there are signs that it might not be as effective as we expect um so we want to see that uh for certain and, and try to gather that data to either say yes it's working great keep doing it yeah. or no it's it's not working and this is what it's actually doing to storms so maybe we should stop this yeah i mean it wouldn't be terrible it'd be great if it was working what a great thing to celebrate but if it was actually prolonging the fact that maybe the hail's bigger by the time it gets to Manitoba or right. Like maybe it's great that Alberta does it, but what if it's worse for Saskatchewan so on and so forth? These things would uh, need to be necessary. What, what's your favorite part, Connell? I mean, you, you have a PhD, so that means you either really liked school or you really like weather and wind and all things that, that to do with this. I mean, what, what attracted you to this kind of study? Sure. Um, so I'd say two things. Um, number one, um, it's a really interesting way to see Canada. Um, yeah, like that's you cool. go, you go to these very rural areas of Canada that I don't think I would have visited otherwise. Um, so it, it's a great way to see the country in that way. Um, and then two, from an engineering perspective, when you get a degree in, in civil or structural engineering, not everyone gets to design the really nice bridges like the the big ones crossing the border or, or the pretty ones like, yeah <laughs> yeah a lot of the engineers i went to school with are designing office buildings and restaurants and, and, and things like that right and it's it's cool to do civil engineering in a way that hopefully can maybe have a positive impact on canadians uh in in the long run more than just like oh here's an office building that i built right so mm. um i i really enjoyed that aspect sort of the the human aspect and the um 
uh, yeah. You just really tied it all together there. I think that's really cool. Do you guys make recommendations then on building codes back to the provinces and say, hey, by the way, you need to stop using nails. You need to use screws or something because of the impact of these house structures when they get obliterated by by these storms? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that that's part of the research that we're doing. And uh, we've made uh, code recommendations um, to both the Canadian Standards Association, as well as the National Building Code of Canada. Uh, we've made one to the National Building Code of Canada before that's been rejected, but hopefully this time maybe we'll, we'll get it through their heads. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's it's you're, you're right. Um, the, the weakest connection in a residential building is the roof to wall connection. Currently right now they use three toenails to um and toenails is a bit of a weird it's a specific type of nail it's not actually yeah. like a, a foot toenail not a fall, um yeah. Yeah, they, <laughs> i they, know what it is because i worked in that world for a little while but oh, most okay. people might they might think it's uh might think it's yeah. actually a toenail yeah. yeah so three toenails uh on all of your roof to wall connections there um and oftentimes when we go to these urban areas we find that those toenails are not up to code or they're not there at all um oftentimes they'll just put a few in uh, and then forget to go back in and do the rest or just skip them um for some reason or another uh which is unfortunate uh, and so what we're recommending is the use of either hurricane straps um which is sort of a metal bracket that connects uh, your roof to well connection or uh, specialty screws that you can use to connect your roof to well connection overall would add probably 200 to 300 dollars in material costs and negligible labor costs um, to add this to a building, um, but getting it in the code is is sort of a tricky endeavor. Well, I'm going to say this. You don't have to because I know you have to be at times properly political, but um, once you fix the roof-to-wall connections, then you're going to be back to the government saying, we need to fix the wall-to-floor connections because no one's screwing that in properly either. I mean, it is about the weakest link, isn't it? For sure, um, but if you fix the roof-to-wall connection, I think – uh, or what I don't think I know uh, from studies that we've done that. Um, so the majority of tornadoes that we get in Canada are EF2 or less, 95 to 99% of them EF2 or less. If you fix that roof to wall connection, your house can withstand that 95 to 99% of tornadoes. Is it going to withstand a tornado like you saw in Didsbury? No, you would have to build a concrete bunker to, to withstand something like you saw in, in that event. But if we can at least get to the point where we're withstanding 95 to 99% of tornadoes, I think that's worth the effort at the very least. Yeah, that Barhaven one would have been a much different outcome, right? I suppose, because that was right in that that wheelhouse too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, this is absolutely fascinating. It's such a great look uh, at all things to do with the wind. And, and my last question for you, uh, Connell, is in the middle of nowhere, I was told through our interviews here on the show that you know, years ago and through the course of time, we had no idea how many tornadoes actually hit Canada because they were so rural. And some people speculate that in today's world, we're, we're not getting, you know, we're getting maybe more tornadoes, but is it possible we just have, we live in more places and we're more spread out and there's more people and we see them more and the technology gives us more and all of those bits and pieces. Um, are we, do we have still lots of dis to discover about where these things happen or do we have good coverage now in that 120 number that you spoke of? Um, yeah, so I again, I wouldn't attribute any uptick you've seen in tornadoes recently to climate change. I would attribute it to us looking harder um, as well as increases in technology and satellite and aircraft and, and drones and being able to 
find these things easier, especially with social media and people talking about it and reporting about it more. Before the Northern Tornadoes project started, Environment Canada was getting around 60 tornadoes per year. And we've been finding that since we've started, that number is closer to 120 and 130. Um, before we can attribute it to climate change or anything else, we need to get many, 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 many years of data where we are confident that we are getting the um, proper amount of tornadoes because junk data in means junk results out, right? That's right. Um, yeah. So we want to make sure that we've got perfect data in as best data that we can find uh, so that we can make comments maybe 10 to 20 years down the line about how our changing weather is affecting these tornadoes. Yeah. We can well, see some things without trends. getting... We, we can see some things without getting the overall number of tornadoes. Like we know tornadoes tend to be shifting eastward. Um, we also know that tornadoes tend to be happening a bit later in the year than they used to. Um, but in terms of number and intensity, it's hard to make final conclusions from that. Okay, I have one more question. I lied to you. Okay. But you inspired me, so it's your fault. Okay. What's the weirdest place that you've had to go to for a tornado that surprised you the most? Ah, um, easily uh, Fort Smith Northwest Territories. Um, so again, um, it's you, you do expect most tornadoes to happen in the warmer areas of Canada. So uh, the southern lip of the prairies, uh, southwestern Ontario and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but every once in a while you have a freak event um, and the uh, territories up in uh, up there do get some tornadoes wow. every once in a while. So I remember flying to Yellowknife and then taking a bush plane out to the community of Fort Smith, Northwestern Ontario uh, or Northwestern Territory. Sorry. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's, it was a, a wild trip and, and wild to see how a tornado affects communities up there. Um, but definitely the, the weirdest place I've to I've get been. that the phone call from the office then, and, and you just say, uh, you need me to go where? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, it's, I am very grateful. My wife is incredibly patient with me because it was exactly that. I get into the office at 9am. I get a text that says, Hey, how do you feel about flying to Yellowknife as soon as possible? Um, and the answer is always, okay, let's go. Wow. Good for you. This is cool. Thank you for your hard work and thanks for the insight. It helps us understand a little bit more about what's going on and, and a much larger perspective too, which seems to me to be what you guys are trying to do there at the um, Northern Tornadoes Project. Pretty fascinating stuff. Thanks, Connell. No problem. Happy to be here. <laughs> this is the Shift Podcast. System breach. What just happened? Someone hacked me. All right, so uh, Hank Fordham is here, and uh, Hank is what we call a white hat hacker, which means that he's kind of like a locksmith. He tries to break into businesses when they know about it and um, and get in and, and let them know how they can fix it, find holes. He's uh, one man in a leaky boat, really, is what it all it is, and he joins us from Calgary here. Hank, welcome back. I start with a very important question for you, sir. Well, give it to me. All right. We hear about hacking. And I feel like hacking, we use too loosely. I mean, hacking is a very productive way to try to make computers and stuff do things. We wouldn't have many different coding languages if it weren't for a bunch of hackers trying to hack their way through creating things online. And it was brought to my attention hijacking. And while hacking could be the way of getting in, 
It's really not what's going on. What's going on is hijacking. Can you help us understand the difference? You know, I just, I love this question because um, hacking, I'm just going to start with like where hacking came from, but hacking was never actually like computer hacking or anything. It actually, it was a term coined in uh, MIT in the 60s in a, a model train club where they would actually like make their trains go faster, or add lights or, uh, you know, a smoke outlet or something to the train. And eventually they called this hacking their trains. And so it, this geeky crowd, if you will, and community kind of turned into uh, doing all these funny things like measuring a bridge in 500 Brian's or something. And, but that's where the term hacking came from. And I think you're right with the misconception because it, what we see a lot of the time, and especially with um, with this recent, I guess, compromise or hijack with the Alberta Dental Service Corp, uh, it it is a hijack. It's it's basically a hijack of data or information um, or a system in some cases, and in return for you know financial information or just just to sit and and gather info in some cases but i i think you're right that it is a, a it is a hijack in in some mm. cases and there's kind of a misconception well we we do get more active when we use words like ransom because we have ransomware which locks up the computer until you pay the money and then hopefully when you pay the money they give you your stuff back so those terms seem to be accurate to me um, this one seems to be a little bit loose. Okay, so let's expand on this dental thing. Help us understand what happened this week. Uh, so the Alberta Dental Service Corporation, which has been a, a dental benefits administrator for a, a few different government of Alberta programs for over 25 years, um, they they got hacked recently. And I'm going to quote one of their administrators here uh, or board members, but they went in on Monday, uh, noticed that the computers were all kind of locked down and had a message saying, in his words, um, you have to pay this ransom. Uh, if you don't do this, then, or if you do this, then we'll unhack you or you'll be unhacked. Um, and so in this case, the insurance company actually paid the entire cost, which, you know, generally it's kind of an average of 1.5 million dollars so uh, they got locked down with ransomware paid 1.5 million dollars but the the scary thing for us here is that uh roughly 7300 seniors bank information um and the names and dental program id numbers for 1.5 million albertans was actually exposed in this compromise so we don't know what kind of information? Well, the the actual dental program ID and the name itself can't necessarily lead to any big um, actions that the hacker could take. But like we mentioned before with that gold dusk for pretexting and, you know, the real, real scary thing here and in the industry, what I would call critical is the 7,300 seniors who've had their personal banking info leaked. And 
as a result of this, um, the Alberta Dental Service Corp is actually offering uh, credit monitoring for people who've been affected. So um, it might be worth, you know, contacting Alberta Dental Service Corp if you live in Alberta and uh, seeing if that if you're eligible for this complimentary credit monitoring. It seems to be a, um, a very common response is, by the way, this happens. So you need to watch. We will watch the stuff for you or pay for your subscription for the next whatever years for this to go on. And but still very scary, um, especially with things like medical, because here we are with medical Now we've heard of some uh, hacks and everything that have happened. But truly, we, you can log in at, depending on the province, your access is different. I know that here in Alberta, where I live, I mean, I can go in when I had my MRI done and I got a notification that the diagnosis was written right from from the experts on the shoulder and what was recommended for repair. It was all written there. And then I, I read it before my doctor even called to go over it with me. Then I went into my, because uh, I have a, a sports doctor that takes care of the joint stuff. And then I went to my GP just for a normal standard old appointment. Walked in and John says, so how about that shoulder, eh? You going for surgery? And I was like, yeah, I read that. And it occurred to me, A, that's cool. B, that's all online if somebody wanted to take it. And if somebody wanted to lock that stuff down, that's a pretty scary notion. We've heard some stories out of the States because it's private and they're smaller organizations, but we haven't, have we heard anything about hitting governments on a large scale yet or anything like this? I, I mean, it's becoming a lot more frequent, especially with ransomware attacks. The hacks are, um, they're not slowing down and the number kind of frequency and the value is increasing significantly um, and especially now with with different entities, foreign entities becoming involved, uh, some of the hackers are very well organized and, and very intelligent. But I, I don't think it's the first time that government entities have been targeted by hackers, whether domestic or foreign. I think that it happens all the time, but but it's starting to pick up is the scary thing. And, and I, you know, I mention this all the time, but if you work in the health industry, you happen to be a fairly big target for hackers. And so that's why it's worth taking some of these extra steps, like enabling two-factor authentication, um, just to make sure that you're you're protecting this information a little bit better. And it, it brings me to think about one of the posts that I saw on Shifthead's Facebook page um, with someone saying, stop, stop feeding the data miners. Yeah, and Ms. Josie had commented on, someone had posted a thing, and then um, Ms. Josie, who has a history in IT, had said, stop feeding the data miners. And then there was another comment from one other person that basically had reinforced that. Uh, and now some of these, let's talk about that, because we have some of these people that are, you know, posting curious, curious things. I want to read this. Uh, Neville was the one who had said computer hacker used um, to fish internet chat rooms. And so there, here is the assertion that some of these, I don't know, pages that create these memes are doing it with a hidden agenda. 
I follow a cabin Instagram and they have little tiny cabins, cabin plans, photos, tours that they share for all these people who do these reviews on cabins. And it's been like that for years and they've built up thousands and thousands of followers. Now, all of a sudden, I'm going through my scroll and there's like, I don't know, some junky gadget how to on their feed. And they put that feed, they put that gadget in the feed. And then you watch the video without realizing it. They're trying to sell you and link you. And then after a day, they actually delete that from their grid. So when you look at their grid, it's all still cabins, but they're force feeding these things and with these links and affiliate links into your feed because you like cabins, even though it has nothing to do. It's a brand new rubber ducky or something that they're trying to get you to buy. They have a hidden agenda. They've built this entire uh, profile specifically with the notion that they would get tens of thousands of followers and then start to insert their own ads and links for you to click on things. Now, I'm assuming that they're legitimate links to go buy the rubber ducky, but really you don't know what's there. You don't know what those links are for. This particular piece that was uh, shared by Ms. Josie about what was your dad's occupation in the 60s. These are the kinds of questions that are your verification questions. What's your mom's middle name, right? Stuff like that. What's your dog's name? What was the first high school? What's the, the name of your nephew or your niece or whatever? These are pretty typical verification questions. And some of the hidden agendas here, Hank, seem to be that people are just fishing for more info and if they ask all the right questions, and they document it all, you actually could get the answers. What's the first album you ever bought? That's another one, right? Like yeah, you, abs- you can absolutely pretty, pretty standard. And they could just be doing nothing but creating a, a profile on 10 or 15, 20,000 people. And next thing you know, they're hammering, um, your questions, trying to get into your accounts and steal your stuff. Is that even reasonable? Uh, you know, I think it much less now than before, but it's still very, very extremely relevant and, and reasonable to think that. And cause it's true. Like um, I look at this compromise with the dental service corp again, and a lot of the banking info that was con- uh, exposed here was actually like provided voluntarily. And so it, it, you know, it's just because something is asking for information or allowing a little bit more convenience by supplying information doesn't mean that it's a good idea. And, and, it, and that's especially relevant with these social media posts where, you know, I've, I've actually seen an incident response um, investigations before where, you know, we've had someone made a sponsored Facebook advertisement. And they wait for it to get enough attention. It gets like 10,000 likes or whatever. And it say, like you said, it's one post selling one thing. Um, and it looks like a very legitimate ad gets a lot of attention. But then they edit the post and modify it so that down the road a week later, it's actually asking for some kind of info or saying, what's your what's your mother's maiden name or like something silly like that. And because the post has already garnered so much attention and so much reputation, people, and and because people want to interact, 
um, then, you know, they, they put that information there and it just makes you, you know, it speaks well on the rule about being careful about what you share online. Is it too old school to think that somebody's sitting there in today's world and taking this example of what's your dad's occupation from the sixties and actually creating a profile and manually trying to do this in today's world of bots and robots and AI trying to figure out and scrape the internet looking for your information so you can log into your Spotify account and someone can steal your music. Like, I mean, is this too old of a notion or do you think this is something that still goes on? No, it's not old school at all. It's not too old at all. I, you know, I'll, I'll speak from experience when I do um, these cyber engagements, like we'll have companies come and they'll ask us to hack them and tell them how to fix it. Um, you know, one of the big parts of that is doing online open source and intelligence, like gathering intelligence and information that might be posted online. And well, while a majority of these really big services online probably don't allow you to recover a password by saying like those five security questions anymore, yeah. it's still something that allows hackers to generate a password list. Like that's a very successful method um, in my personal experience doing ethical hacking uh, is just using information like that. What's your maiden name? What's your favorite color? What's your first dog's name? Like just stuff like that and throwing it all into an automated tool, like you said, a bot and getting it to generate passwords for me. So I think of these um, hacking groups that, like my dad went through, right, where they click the link, call the phone number, and, um, you know, they, they, the guys that hack the hackers, and then they phone these troll farms, and they, they reverse engineer, and they're like, I know that you're at this address on the fourth floor, right? And, and they try to scare the hackers into uh, leaving them alone, because quite often these thieves that are trying to steal your money, they're not expert hackers. They're just con artists. And so this makes me think of the con artists that might phone your phone you and say, you know, hey, we just want to verify, you know, we know that that your dad was a carpenter in the 60s, you know, all that stuff. And someone someone could use that as that that emotional access to for you to give more information to. Right. Or used to work with your dad when he was a carpenter back in the 60s. Imagine that someone stranger phones you. Hey, I used to work with your dad when he was a carpenter back in the 60s. That seems like an incredibly simple access point now when we look at it that way. And if, if anyone listening wants a really good example of what, what Shane's talking about, like what this looks like, um, go on YouTube and search scamming the scammer. That's all you have to search. There's tons of videos of, uh, you know, one of my favorites is Kit Boga. And he's all he does is he gets these scammers to target him. And once they do... Uh, he'll just waste their time by trying to have like a three hour phone call pretending like he's following along or yeah. um, or they'll actually hack them back and report it to their local police. There's been a few times where they've reported it and gotten them busted. But um, yeah, definitely entertaining. But, it you know, it happens all the time and it's possible for that to go in reverse as well. So it's got to be very careful doing that. <laughs> Yeah, well, remember, when someone calls you and, and knows information about a family member and things like that, it is possible that it is something yeah. that you have posted online. And, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I have a friend of mine, and he 
somehow manages this. I don't know how he does it. But he posts the wrong information always. Like his birth date is always wrong. And he puts in his birth date for a website. And he has a formula, I guess, of his lies. And he somehow manages to navigate all of these lies because he knows how to get into all of his accounts. But his birth date is not his birth date. Um, his mom's maiden name is not his mom's maiden name and all those things, right? And I mean, I've heard some people say that that's what they do, right? They'll say, you know, what is your mom's maiden name? Um, and they'll put Camaro, right? Because it's their favorite car. And they'll say, you know, what was the first album you ever bought? And they'll just put in sleep, right? Like they'll, they have their own wrong answers that they put in because nobody would guess the wrong answer. I don't know if that works or not, but it seems like it's creative. Oh, man. Yeah, that I actually that's really smart because then you're you're planting fake info for the hackers too. They're gonna think, oh, the maiden name could have actually been Camaro. <laughs> Imagine if someone phoned you and they're like, "Hey, I I I worked with your um when your mom when her last before she married your dad and her she was still a Camaro." <laughs> hey, Mister Camaro! Like, Holy cow, you are a scammer. That's scary stuff, man. Um, very scary. I I. The manipulation part really gets me, right? When someone would phone and uh, and, and say those things. Um, well, and that's exactly it. They play on that to hoodwink people into kind of falling victim because they right. get they gather up that gold dust. And by gold dust, it's all that information that we post online. And then they execute their campaign. And so it's just very important. Be careful what you share online. Um, and it's always a good idea to sign up for credit monitoring. Um, do you, uh, I mean, your dad was a, in rock and roll, so it's probably not the best example, but there's a lot of people that do those things, right? Like you're, Hey, it's your cousin, Steve, and I'm in jail and I need you to send money or I can't reach my parents or stuff like that. I mean, it, it's probably different for you because your, your dad was, uh, uh, well, he was in the band Crow. He's Crowbar. He wrote songs and stuff. So, um, so that must be different for you. But I mean, for for most people, when when they go through this, I mean, that's that scary part, right? Oh yeah, I, they, like imagine that, you know, calling and being like, oh hey, by the way, uh, Shane, I sent uh, I sent a bunch of money to to Mexico because Hank was in jail. <laughs> what do you mean Hank's in jail? He was just here last night. Like you know what I mean? He, you know, he actually was targeted a couple of times by similar campaign or similar scams like that, where they were basically trying to ask him to transfer funds. And and you, you, it's crazy because one of these was actually targeting him based on the fact that he was a musician and mm -hmm. um, he was he actually fallen for it at first because they it was basically they they knew that he was doing a shirt or a transaction for having shirts made with a certain company. Right. And then they were able to use that to contact him and, and kind of build rapport um, as if they, they kind of already knew him and had a business relationship. And to solve that, because eventually he was in a care facility and he, he wasn't at home with me. Um, I set him up a Google home mini that had a phone connected to it. So he could make phone calls out and receive phone calls from pre, uh, pre, I guess, predefined phone numbers. Um, but it made it harder to target him. Fascinating. 
It's cool stuff. Thanks for being here. Uh, Hank the Hacker, Summer of Cyber Safety. You'll be back next week. We'll chat about more. If you have questions, share them at the shiftheads.ca Facebook group, and we will take them and talk about them right here. Thanks, Hank. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.